step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. All right. Jeremiah chapter 12. We did not make it very far. We didn't really even get into the text because we found ourselves dealing with a, a very important subject that I thought we wouldn't really deal with till chapter 31. The Bible study guide, for some reason in session four, really wants to make this the focus. So, or at least, I don't know if this was their intention, but obviously the first paragraph in the study guide led us to this lengthy discussion this morning, about an hour long, on the whole subject of the new covenant. So I'm going to read the paragraph that sparked it. I'm going to try to at least review a little bit about what we talked about and see if we can advance this. Um, I would... I wanted to just jump right into Jeremiah chapter 12, but we kind of ended this morning without looking at probably the key book in the New Testament about the New Covenant. So we're going to have to go look at the passages there and see what we can discover, right? But here is how it starts, all right? They have, now uh, this morning I skipped some of this. So it's session four, all right? Then it says exclusive, and then underneath this they have kind of their, their thesis statement salvation includes entering into an exclusive covenant with God. All right, that sounds okay, but then the way they describe this in a minute is where we started having some questions. Here is the entire paragraph, all right? Traditional wedding vows often include, will you, forsaking all others, be faithful as long as you both shall live? It is a promise of singular and exclusive devotion. It is no surprise that in both the Old Testament and New Testament, the covenant of marriage describes God's relationship to Israel and Christ's relationship to his church. When a person is saved by grace through faith in Christ, that individual enters into a covenant that calls for a singular and exclusive devotion to the Lord. Now, immediately when you read that, you have to kind of stop and go, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. They're making a claim that the new covenant, one of the elements of the new covenant is that you now basically must have an exclusive singular devotion to Christ. In other words, that would say that in this covenant, this is your responsibility, that you must have a singular devotion to Christ. Now, the question is, is that in the new covenant? 
Now, so far, we haven't seen anything even remotely coming close to that, right? So we started talking about the new covenant, all right? So when to talk about the new covenant, where do you start? If you're going to talk about the new covenant, where do you start? You start in the old covenant, okay? Because the old covenant foretells of the new covenant. It is first mentioned in Jeremiah, or we, we could argue about first, but one of the major sections is Jeremiah chapter 31. And the first thing any good Bible student is we'll see is what's the first thing we encounter when we turn to Jeremiah 31, I believe it's verse 31, and we see it mentioned the new covenant. The first thing we are confronted with is, it's not to us. So the house of Israel and the house of Judah. All right, that's the first issue. The second issue is it seems to imply that in this new covenant, whenever it's put into force, whenever it's carried out, that something radical is going to happen to Israel and to Judah. They are basically going to get a new heart and they're going to basically stop what? Sinning. They're going to put away all of their idols and they're going to walk in the statutes of the Lord and they are going to obey. And nowhere does the text imply, well, they'll just do better. No, (laughs) it's not like they're going to have a new level of obedience. It seems to describe a perfect obedience. So we know immediately something is not right here, right? Because that has never even come close to occurring. Everyone can agree, right? Not only that, they're going to get the land. And that's repeated over and over and over. They're going to get the land. Now, someone did email me this afternoon, go, wait a minute. Uh, In Joshua, it seems to imply that they got the land. But, what, but here's what we know. First of all, even if, even if Joshua said, even if in Joshua they get the land. Remember we had this conversation? And remember the way I approached it? It was like, okay, let's just pretend they got the land in Joshua. But in Jeremiah 31, that's a future promise. They're going to get the land. Meaning, clearly we know after Joshua, they lost the land. So meaning that, so, the, so even if they got the land in Joshua 24, that's the famous text that everyone quotes. Even if they got it there, it doesn't matter because all we need to see is there a promise after that of land and the promise in Jeremiah 31, which is attached to the new covenant, is that they will get the land. So even if they got it, clearly they lost it and clearly the promise is still there for them to get it. All right, so everyone got that? And not only, so basically they're going to be sinless, I mean, basically, it sounds like they're going to be sinless, they're going to have land, and they're going to have a completely new heart, which seems to imply the eradication of what? The old nature. And none of that has ever occurred. Can we all agree with that? So, how did the early church handle it? Has to be the church, because there was no Israel, so they applied it to the church, right? Now, the only problem is, that's never even happened in the church, so then how do they get around that? Well, it just means that we will, when we're saved, we're supposedly transformed, even though clearly we know we're not, but we're going to be transformed and we'll just do better. They have to then, they have to change it all. Land doesn't mean land. Israel doesn't mean, let, uh, doesn't mean Israel. And when it says that they will obey, it just simply means that they will obey more so. 
but they can't qualify what more so equals, right? So it, it just turns into an entire mess. So what we have determined by, by the end of this morning is that clearly the new covenant has never been put into effect as of yet. And where is the only place we think we can fit it? It has to be the millennial kingdom. That's the only, there's no other way to do it theologically. There's just no other way. And that doesn't, and I know those in the reform world and those in the more academic world, they mock that. They say that's those dumb dispensationalists. And they, look, I don't even care about calling it dispensational or calling it anything. I just know those promises have never been fulfilled. So either God lied, God failed, or it has to happen, okay? It has to happen. And if it, or you, that you're supposed to interpret it in a non-literal way, which would destroy how you interpret the entire Old Testament, right? So then you're, you're completely done. So the only thing we can say is it has to happen in the millennial. Now, you, on, one, on one hand, we feel like we can just do what at that point? Just say, okay, we're done, right? Good, everybody good with the new covenant? Well, where does the problem begin? Well, Hebrews is the problem, but the main issue is us. Where do we fit in? Where do we fit in? How do we fit into this, right? That's always the question, right? So, because we know the new covenant is made with Israel, there's no question about it. So, what is our part? Well, in the Gospels, Jesus mentioned of the covenant, he doesn't really go into any detail. Others connecting what to the covenant? His blood. His blood, right? Okay, so that doesn't really, it doesn't really articulate or explain how any of that works. Okay, that we need help, right? Okay, so where else then can we go? It has to be Hebrews. So I need you to look in whatever concordance you have and let's find every reference to New Covenant, Covenant, New Testament, Testament in the book of Hebrews. I know this is taking us away from Jeremiah, but uh, this saves us time when we get to Jeremiah 31, all right? Now, by the time we get to Jeremiah 31, everyone is going to have forgotten this sermon. Okay, but you, you need to have it marked, okay? What's the first reference? Okay, I think eight is the first reference. I believe that's correct, all right? All right, so here we go. I'm going to set aside the Bible dictionary, which we read this morning. Let's go to the book of Hebrews, and let's see what happens. Now, just so that we, so I want to make sure we're all on the same page. Why are we going to Hebrews? Well, because the covenant is mentioned. We haven't read it yet. And what are we attempting to figure out? Where we fit in. Now, remember, the, the study guide connected the covenant, an element to the covenant, that that means now you have to have a singular devotion to Christ, that that is your responsibility in the covenant. Now, why, why, is my, why, what, why am I concerned with that language being attached to the new covenant? Because the old covenant, what was connected with it? Law. What happened? They couldn't do it. So if you attach that to the new covenant, you see why I would get concerned. Because I guarantee you, if you tell me your responsibility in the new covenant is a singular devotion to Christ, you have all failed the new covenant. So what does that mean if you failed the new covenant? Oh, that it wasn't better than the old covenant. 
All right, see, you see the theological dilemma? There would be nothing new. It would be like, hey, I'll do this if you do this. Well, if, if, if there's any if condition in the new covenant that I have to do something, then it's no better than the old covenant because whatever the condition would be, what would be the result for all of us? We wouldn't do it because no one in this room, if you even pretend you have a singular devotion to Christ, you're a liar. Okay, amen? Okay, okay. All right, or owe me. Okay, I agree. I mean, it's just the reality. I'm, I'm speaking of myself. We're all in the same boat there, okay? All right, so we're going to Hebrews chapter 8. Right? Everyone says it's, it's first used in verse 6, correct? So that means we should start in verse 1, all right, of chapter 1. No, I'm joking, I'm joking, I'm joking. We'll go to Hebrews 8, 1, all right? Here we go. Oh, boy. Oh, this is going to get convoluted and complicated and brains, our brains are going to melt and we're just going to just all give up and quit here in about five minutes. But right, let's see if we can do this. Here we go. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices, wherefore it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law, who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For, see, uh, for, see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern shewed thee to thee in the mount. But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. Okay, gets a little confusing and wordy there, but here's the basic concept of what's happening. Let's make sure we just remember. This is important. Hebrews is written to whom? Jews, thank you so very much. Thank you. It's written to the Hebrews, okay, right? right? To Israel. All right, now, what do we believe is the historical context here that makes Hebrews, that, that is the absolute, maybe the hermeneutical key to the entire book? It's right before the destruction of the temple. So let's just make sure Israel and the Jews are still the focal point here. Okay? And so there starts to be this con contrast in the book of Hebrews between the things that belong to which covenant? The old covenant. And it's going to make an argue that something better has come along. Now, why is it so important that they understand the better part that's come along? Because of all of the old things are about to be gone. The priesthood, what's about, what will happen uh, to the priesthood in 70 A.D.? cease to exist what will happen to even your genealogical records knowing which tribe you're of gone what will happen to the temple gone tabernacles already gone but it's going to be completely gone ark of the covenant gone everything gone all gone all right so what what do you need if all of that's going to be gone well you need a replacement 
The only problem is you don't want an identical replacement because what was the result of all of that stuff in the Old Testament? Rebellion, sin, conviction, death, and judgment. So then you would want something better, better, okay? And that's where we just kind of started seeing where he was going with that, right? Yes? Okay. Because he says for verse 4 again, for if we were on, if for if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that the priests that offer gifts according to the law, who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when, uh, when he was about to make the tabernacle, for see, saith he, that thou maketh all things according to the pattern showed thee in the mount, but now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry. A more excellent ministry would be what kind of a ministry? A better ministry, right? Does that make sense? By now also he's the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. So whatever the new covenant is, it's going to be better than the old. Now, did we not already see that it's better than the old in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel? Why is it better than the old? Because in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel, what was the responsibility of the people in that uh, covenant? No, not in the new covenant. No, 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 no. Okay, the old one, they had to. But in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel, what was the people's responsibility in the new covenant? It says God's going to do everything, right? God's going to bring them into the land. God's going to give them a new heart. He tells them that everything they're going to do is going to be because of God. They don't have to. There's no responsibility outlined for them. Okay? So this new covenant, we already know. Is it not a better promise? Is it not a better covenant? Yes. Okay. All right. So is everybody still on board? All right. Okay. This is very, very important. All right. Verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, everybody see that? Then should no place have been sought for the second. Okay, if the first one was perfect, there would be no need for the second. Clearly, we know the first one wasn't perfect because what did it end with? Death and destruction, death and destruction, death and destruction. Why did it end with death and destruction? Well, because it had a law element to it, right? Everybody agree? All right, verse 8, for finding fault with them, he saith, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. Stop right here. Now he says, when he found fault with them, what fault did he find in them? They didn't obey the demands of the first covenant. Okay, so, but then look, what is he quote there? What is he quoting? He's quoting Jeremiah. How does he quote it? He says, house of Israel, house of Judah. I cannot stress the importance of this, all right? Now, whenever you read this as a good Bible student, you immediately have to stop and go, what do I do here? What do I do here? What do I do here? And what are the two ways of approaching this in in theological circles throughout the history of Christianity? Okay, it literally is the house of Israel and house of Judah, or it's spiritual, it's the church, okay? 
All right, now we know, obviously in Jeremiah 31, we know it's not referencing the church. And if he's quoting this here, some people say, well, clearly this is for the church. But he's writing to whom? The Jews. And guess why this would be so critical to the Jews? Why would this be so critical to the Jews? The old covenant's about, everything related to the old covenant's about to be destroyed. Do you know how traumatic that would be for them? For us, it's just an old building that got destroyed. We don't care, right? Come on, be honest. You don't care that the temple got destroyed. But for a Jew, it's the end of everything. In fact, it basically would almost be connected to what? The end of the world. Because who who dwells in Jerusalem? God. If, If... the temple is destroyed, that's almost like saying God is being destroyed. God no longer exists. That's why in that culture, whenever an invading army would come in, what would they destroy? They would destroy their temples because it was a way of saying that we have destroyed your God and our God is greater than your God, okay? So this would be a serious thing. Now, what would people getting ready to face that need to be reminded of? That God made a... A new covenant. And that promise would be first and foremost for whom? Judah. The Jews, right? Okay, I know this is, I know 99% of people listening in other churches are going to be losing their minds right now saying we are wrong. But I'm sorry. I've got, I've, if I can't understand the text by the words that are used, I don't know what else to do, right? And then what does he say in verse 9? Not according to the covenant that I made with Their fathers, in the days when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continue not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. Let me make it very clear. If you had any doubt who this covenant is about, that right there should just end all discussion. Right? Verse 9, that cannot be spiritual Israel. Why can that not be spiritual Israel? He's talking about their removal from Egypt. The church wasn't removed from Egypt, ladies and gentlemen. This is referring to Israel, right? Okay, so he's speaking to the Jews. Reminding them, hey guys, these are Jewish believers. Hey, Everything in the old covenant's going to be gone. Don't cling to it. Don't hold to it. And I know you're going to be traumatized, but something better is coming. And what's better? A better covenant that has better promises. What are the better promises? Well, so far, so let's go. Now look at verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days saith the Lord. Now in verse 10, is he still referencing Jeremiah or is he referencing something else? We have cross references to verse 10. Okay, is he referencing Jeremiah 31-33? Is everybody good with that? Jeremiah 31-33? We feel confident? Well, look it up. Okay, I was, I was going to make sure that we're, we're still in agreement that he's still referencing Jeremiah. All right, I still want to make sure. This is very critical that we all are in agreement here, right? 
Because we know this conversation can lead to massive debates and arguments in, in any church. I'm going to make sure that there's no debate here. He's still quoting Jeremiah 31. I, oh, I'm, oh, I'm sorry. I just made a dogmatic assertion. Yeah, 31, 33. I was just giving the chapter reference. All right, you in agreement too? All right, so he's still quoting from Jeremiah. Right? Now, what does he quote here? For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law into their mind, write them in their hearts. I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. Now, let me just ask a question. Even in the time, what's the date for the writing of the book of Hebrews? We think around 68, 69 AD. Did all Jews believe in Jesus and in God in 68, 69 AD? Did they all know God and didn't need to be taught? From the least to the greatest? No. So meaning even in 68, 69, what has not yet been put into effect? The new covenant. And we know one year later what's getting ready to happen. They're going to be wiped off the face of the earth. Clearly it still had not. And is it in effect today? No, it's still not in effect. Why is it not in effect? Is Israel in the land? No. Has Israel got a new heart and no longer sin? No. I mean, none of it has happened. Okay. Oh, well, he's not on the throne in Israel. Remember, that's the promise, that, that he'll be ruling over them in Israel, right? So he's not, he's not, he's not there, right? Okay, so what happens? Okay, let, let's see what happens. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Now, what's interesting, he's quoting this, and he's quoting this still as if it is future. Does everyone agree with that? The writer of Hebrews, he's saying, hey, guys, don't you remember when this happened? Is he reminding them? He seems to be reminding that something is still to come. Why would they need to be reminded that this is going to happen? Because in 12 months, everything pertaining to the old covenant will cease to exist. In 12, about 12, maybe 24 Somewhere between a year to two years, depending on the dating of the book, but everyone dates it before the destruction. They're going to need to know this because when you're sitting there going, uh, the temple's gone. Hey, where's the high priest? Uh, gone. Where's the sacrificial system? Gone. Where's the Shekinah glory? Gone. Where's the mercy seat? Gone. Where's everything? God, which tribe are you a part of? Well, there's no way to prove it anymore. Gone. Well, then what are you going to need to know? That God is not done with them. Now, everybody wants to take this and make it about whom? Us. Just look up every church in Abilene, Texas. Find every church that has preached a sermon on this passage and tell me what they do with it. They would say that we're heretics here. 
but I'm sorry. I don't know how we get around this. Right? What happens in verse 13? In that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. Does, is there any debate that I'm wrong about now what he's talking about? What's about to vanish away? The old. I mean, he literally tells you it's about to vanish away. Is it gone yet? No, because they're in 69 AD. What's still there? Everything is still there. The priests are still there. The sacrificial system is still there. It's all there. And he said, it's about to vanish away. When is it going to vanish away? 12 to 24 months. It's going to be gone. All right. Now, chapter 9, does not, chapter 9 mentioned covenant, right? All right. Then, you see the word, does the NIV start with then? Now, verily, how does it read in the NIV? Okay, now the first covenant had also ordinances, divine service, and a worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made, uh, the, first, the first wherein was the candlestick and the table and the shoe bread, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the table of the covenant. Now, please note, everything here connected to the old covenant has the tables of the covenant. Do you see that? What were the tables of the covenant? Well, just read it. What's what's the tables of the covenant? I'm waiting for everyone else to see if they agree with us. Okay, I think it's what I think, but maybe I'm wrong here. I'm getting nervous because I thought everyone would just immediately say, "Okay, well, well, good. Nobody's supposed to hear what she was supposed. She was answering for everybody, and she's not supposed to." Okay, the Ten Commandments. Okay, good. All right, but I'm just saying, does not everyone understand how significant that is? He's connecting all the things of the old covenant. It's literally called, at least in the King James, the tables of the covenant. They are the Ten Commandments, meaning what's connected with the first covenant. Law. Law. Okay, good, good. Law, law. Does everyone see that, the significance of this? It's law. Everything connected with the first covenant is connected to law. Therefore, what was the first covenant going to do? Just convict, condemn, and lead to death. It was not going to save anybody. It could not save anyone. Does everyone understand that? Right? He's, he's listing everything that's associated with the first covenant, is he not? Okay, all right. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm getting nervous. Everybody's kind of looking at me like I'm out of my mind. It's, it's right there, right? He goes on, and over, uh, and over it, the cherubims of glory, shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly, now then these things were thus ordained. The priests were, went always into the first tabernacle to accomplish the service of God. But unto the second went the high priest alone once every year. 
uh, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while at the first tabernacle was yet standing. Right? So know the, way, the true way in had not been manifested yet. The true way had not been made manifest. All they knew they could do is go in and do what? Bring in the blood and get out. Right? Okay. And then do what? And once a year. And then what happens in the next verse? Which was figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. Meaning that all of these things could not do what? Could not give them the true way in and could not make them perfect because it had law. But then look what happens in verse 11. But Christ became an high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of goat, blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God to purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. He is trying to contrast for Israel that the old covenant did not do what? Did not make them perfect, did not save them, and it was incomplete. But now Christ has come. And so they need to look to Christ. Okay, everyone still with me? All right, now what happens in verse 15? And for this cause, he's the mediator of the New Testament. Who's the mediator? Christ. What is involved in the mediation of this new covenant? His sacrificial death, right? Okay, that by the means of Death for the redemption of the transgressions that they were under the first testament that that which are called might receive the promise of internal inheritance. For, there is, for where a testament is, there must also by necessity be, be the death of the test, testator. For, for a testament is of force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is no strength at all while the testator liveth. Whereupon neither the first testa- testament was dedicated without blood. Right? Meaning, hey... Who mediates it? Christ. When was it mediated? When he died, right? That's when he starts putting the the, the, uh, situation into effect, all right? Then starting at verse 19, I think we we can read this. Where's the next major reference to uh, covenant or testament in Hebrews? Or, Or have we read all of them? Okay, there's nothing else between uh, there and 12? Okay, okay, ver- okay we'll, we'll read verse 20. Okay, we'll go ahead and read verse 19 to 20 then. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of 
the ministry. Now, meaning that even the old covenant still required what? Blood. But it was a blood that was insufficient. That was insufficient. So they were going to need a new covenant and a better blood and a better priest and a better sacrifice and a better tabernacle and a better, better, better temple and a better everything. Okay? Now, so where's the next use of covenant or testament? Okay. So I don't think there's nothing in chapter 10. Does everybody agree with that? Okay. Chapter 10, what? Chapter 10, verse 16. Okay, good. Okay. I didn't want to, I knew there was something else somewhere. Okay. All right. Let's go with, let's go with verse nine. Let's go to verse seven, Hebrews 10, seven. Look, I would like to read all of this to you, but I'm just trying to go through so that we get a basic idea of the new covenant, right? All right, 10, 7. Then I said, I, lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do thy will, O God. Above when he saith, sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin, thou wouldest not, neither hath pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said he, lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first that he may establish the? What's the first that he's taking away? The old covenant. What is he going to establish? The new covenant. By the which will we are sanctified through the offerings of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And every priest standeth uh, ministering and offering uh, oftentimes the same sacrifice which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. From henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool, for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Wherefore the Holy Ghost also is witness to us that after that he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law into their hearts and in their minds. When will I write, will I write them and their sins and iniquity will I remember no more. Now, where remission of these is, there is no more offering uh, for sin. Meaning that Christ was going to come and die, and by Christ coming to die, what would be taken care of? Sin. Because of Christ, there's also the future promise that one day all the, the, their, their sinful nature is going to be de- taken care of as well, right? Which was once again a reference back to Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Okay? That takes care of chapter 10. Is there anything in chapter 11? I don't think there's anything in 11. Agreed? Or no? Okay, so we're in chapter 12. Okay? Chapter 12 what? 12.24. All right. Now, this is where maybe where things can get a little complicated. All right? Up to this point, we don't really have any complication. Everything still primarily focuses on whom? Israel, we don't really have any problems up to this point, yes? Okay, so let's start in 12.22. But ye are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. 
Now, the issue is the church is kind of mentioned there. doesn't really go into any detail. And then the covenant is mentioned, but we don't have any definitive, like, okay, how does it apply? How does it connect? So some people would try to make a big issue, but uh, there's nothing really there to cause any problems. Is the covenant mentioned anymore in Hebrews? 13.20, all right. Here we go, 13.20. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. And there, there's nothing really there to cause any problems. Now, from, okay, so that removes Hebrews. We've looked at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, any remaining books where covenant, testament, New Testament, new covenant is mentioned? Okay, no. All right. Okay, we okay, we we had about 15 minutes to try to try to clean this up. All right? We don't have anything else, do we? Now, is it not fascinating to you that with the information we just looked at, we looked at everything that the church has created this entire kind of teaching on it that in many ways go way beyond what we have seen. So what, if you were to take everything that you have read in the Bible, what would you be able to say about the new covenant? (laughs) We don't even really know our part in it, do we? None of those passages even really mention our part, does it? It's the only thing that's going to give us a little bit of interest that we're engrafted in, but it doesn't really offer or explain anything, right? The, the, all of the passages about the new covenant are clearly in the context of whom? Israel. I mean, even in Hebrews, who is mentioned? House of Israel, house of Judah. And he makes references about us. Us. Who's the us? The Jews, because it's the book of Hebrews. So the new covenant, so how can we, now I know we're going to get ourselves in so much trouble here, but that's okay. The new covenant is made with whom? Israel. What are the promises connected to the new covenant? Okay. All right, well, okay, we'll, we'll just go through some, main. let's go ahead and get the main one. We'll go, I'm not going to say that the main is important, but we'll just get this one out of the way. Land, okay, because it's repeated over and over and over in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, okay? I don't, I don't know. We didn't necessarily see it in Hebrews, but it's clearly repeated in those, all right? Okay, so land, all right? Now, what can we say? Even if you claim that they got the land in Jeremiah 24, they obviously didn't have the land in Jeremiah 31, and they never got it back. Or did I say Joshua? Okay. All right, yeah, if they, even if we believe that they got the land in Joshua, all right, clearly when we get to Jeremiah, They don't have it, and they never get it back, even though it's promised to them in the new covenant. Okay, agreed? All right. And they don't have it today. So either you have to do what? Take the land from them, turn it into something else, and give it to the church. And just say that it's influence, it's prestige, it's power, just nonsense, okay? That, that's ridiculous, all right? So we know clearly that in the new covenant, Israel gets land, they don't have it. Can we all agree with that? 
Meaning then that the new covenant is not fully in effect because they don't have the land. Second thing that they're promised. They're going to get a new heart, seemingly to imply the eradication of the old nature. Does Israel have a new heart? No. All right. So that's not happened. Number three, it seems to imply that not only with this new heart, that they're basically not going to sin. In fact, it's not just basically, it seems to imply they're going to walk in his statutes, obey him, never disobey, and there's going to be no more idolatry, and there's only going to be righteousness. And, oh, well, we'll, get, we'll add that separate, okay? So basically, I mean, I'm just going to say, I'm not going to say basically, they're sinless. Land, new heart, sinless. Next, no need to be taught because everyone knows God from the least to the greatest. Clearly, has that happened? No. And then lastly, all of their sins will be washed away because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Okay. Oh, yeah, we could add that. Oh, they're going to be a united kingdom. They're going to be a united kingdom, and, and, and David is going to rule over them. We'll just say it that way. All right? Not, none of, has any of that happened? No. None of it. Not one of those things has happened. Not even close and then the blood of Christ will wash away all of their sin all right now none of that implies we're not even mentioned right so where do we possibly fit in if we're going to go to any passage where we possibly fit in where do we go find the passage in Romans Chapter 11, all right? And it starts in verse 11, am I correct? All right, Romans 11, 11, one of the most controversial, oh, and I think God's covenant's mentioned in chapter 11. I thought y'all said there was no other place. Yeah, is it not mentioned in 11, or am I wrong? No, it is mentioned in 11, all right? Covenant is mentioned in 11. Okay, so we're just gonna read this entire section. All right, here we go, start in verse 11. All right, this is good stuff, all right, here we go. Everybody ready? Romans 11, 11, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid. Now, who is they who he's referring to? Israel, right? Is is everyone good with that? Okay, go back to verse one, just so that you don't think I'm making things up. I, I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid, what people could he be referring to? For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. Clearly, he's referring to? Israel, okay? Again, I don't know how this could ever be controversial, but okay, all right, here we go. All right, but man alive, it's just, it's just so sad that, nobody can, that within Christianity, nobody can agree on these points that we've outlined. I say then, how, how they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid, or I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid, but rather, through their fall, salvation has come unto the Gentiles, for to provoke them to jealousy. Now, it doesn't necessarily say anything about us in a covenant. It just says salvation comes to us. Now, everyone always talks about our salvation is related to what? Churches will always connect our salvation to the new covenant. But 
We'll see if we are attached to the new covenant, but so far, no passages have connected the Gentiles to it, right? It's connected Israel to it. But we do know that they fall. We then get salvation comes to us. And why do we get salvation? According to that verse? To provoke them to jealousy. Who's the jealous? Who? That, that, just make sure you know, when, it, when we get it, and they get provoked to jealousy, the text is drawing a distinction between whom? Jew and Gentile. The, the, what blows my mind is when you preach this, and then someone will tell you, no, 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 the, Jew, Jew and, the Gentiles and the Jews are the same. How can you read that? Literally, it's drawing a distinction, is it not? We would have to be distinct from them for what purpose? We're the one provoking them to jealousy. It, we can't, it can't be the same. That makes no sense, right? Like, sometimes, sometimes when you're done preaching this passage and people say something, you just kind of go, I, I, I don't, I, I just, I give up. I don't, I don't understand, all right? Okay, so far, let's go. Let's, let's see what happens. Verse 12. Now, if the fall of them, who's the them? Israel. Be the riches of the world and the diminishing of, who's that? The riches of the Gentile. Is that not drawing a distinction? Okay, I don't even know how you can have an argument here. It just, you lose your mind. How much more their fullness? For I speak to you, Gentiles, in so much as I am the apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify mine office. Now, he's, a, he's already sta- established he's an Israelite, but he's an apostle to the Gentiles. So here he's now telling the Gentiles, hey, something good has happened to you because of what bad things have happened to Israel. All right? Verse 14, if by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh and might save some of them. He's hoping that any of the Israelites who hear hear this may be provoked and go, oh, what is going on? Now, just for historical context, what year is the book of Romans written? let's, Let's verify. Let's make sure we have a good date. Let's make sure we have a good date. Okay. Now, this is important because guess what? He's referring to Israel. He's referring to the Gentiles because who still exists as a nation? Israel. What still stands? The temple. What still stands? Jerusalem. All right? But he's already telling you some things are, some bad things have happened to Israel. What bad things have happened to Israel? Well, they're in bondage, okay? And well, there's some other things that are going on them spiritually, all right? Look at verse 15. For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? Hey, if all of these good things happen because of Israel, in a sense, being cast away, can you imagine how good things are going to be when they are brought back? Seemingly to imply they will be brought back. (laughs) I don't know how they're getting... All right, all right. Here we go. Verse 16. For if the first fruit be holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root be holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches be broken off, thou being a wild olive tree. Who's the wild olive tree, ladies and gentlemen? The Gentiles. We are the wild olive tree. 
We are the wild olive tree, worked, grafted in among them, and with them partake us of the root and fatness of the olive tree. We get to benefit in a way. Correct? Now, in what ways do we benefit with them? This text has only offered us one way we benefit. Salvation. Remember it mentioned earlier in the text? That one way we, the only, it doesn't say anything about covenant promises, does it? We, we are benefit from salvation. And how does that salvation occur? Through the blood of Christ, right? Okay, everybody with me? Okay, right? Okay, remember which talked about in Hebrews, talked about in Matthew? Okay, right. right now, what happens in the verse 18? Boast not against the branches, but if thou boast, thou bearest, uh, there bearest not the root, but the root thee. Now, in other words, what should you not do then as a Gentile? You should not boast. You're only grafted in. And I want, I'm gonna, I'm, I'll, I'll start getting mad here. People who want to argue over this drive me crazy because they want to kick Israel out and say, they're done and we're spiritual Israel. Like they're arrogant jerks. Like, who do you think you are? You're just grafted in. Like I, that stuff, oh, you just, man, you can just get very frustrated. Verse 19, thou will say then the branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well, because of unbelief, they were broken off and thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed lest he also spare not thee. In other words, if he set aside Israel, he could set you aside. In other words, don't think you're so high-minded and good. But what does he not say? He, he is at no point saying God is done with Israel. Because the whole argument here is that God is going to do what? Bring them back. You're just engrafted in in the meantime. To do what? What's your whole purpose? What's our whole purpose of being here? To provoke Israel to jealousy. <laughs> right? And that kind of, I don't know if, you, I know, does that make you feel good or not, Right? Okay, well, hey, why, why are you dating her? Because I'm hoping it makes my ex jealous. Okay, you're like, yeah, I don't know. Do you want to be the girl that's just there to make his ex jealous? No, I mean, that, but that's kind of what we are, right? Okay, I guess, okay, all right. I guess I don't care. You're like, I got no problem with that. Okay, all right. Now, verse, uh, if for if God spare not the natural branches, take heed lest he also spare not thee. Verse 22, behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God on them which fell, severity, but towards thee goodness. If thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou shalt also be cut off. And they also, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if thou were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these, which be the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Meaning, if God can bring you in, he obviously can take care he can bring Israel back. But once again, it's still showing that the two are distinct and separate. I don't know how people read this and go, well, what's the problem? It's just spiritual Israel. That makes literally no sense. It, it... All right, but let's just continue on. All right, now what happens in verse 25? For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the 
fullness of the Gentiles be come in, and so all Israel shall be saved. Now, typically, when you preach this, guess what argument you get? All Israel is not referencing the nation of Israel. It's referencing the church. And you're just like, how can you read that and come to that conclusion? How can you do that? I have no way of knowing. I have no way of knowing. In fact, I've almost reached the point here that I just don't even argue. When someone starts arguing that, I just give up. You know, you know what I do? I, I Literally, like if someone was to walk up to the pulpit and argue with me, I just toss my Bible aside and just say, forget it. Who cares? If we can't figure that out, there's no point in even reading the Bible. There is no point. I mean, the whole text has spent the entire time separating the two, has it not? And then what does he reference here when he talks about all Israel being saved? What does it say after he says all Israel will be saved? Oh, he makes a quote from something as it is written. What is he referencing? Okay, did y'all just give me two different references? I got Isaiah 59, 20. What did you say? Oh, I thought you said Zechariah or something. Okay, you said Isaiah 59, 20. We're all in the same boat. Everybody go to Isaiah 59. That scared me for a second. I was like, wait, how many references did we just get there? Isaiah 59. Now, once again, when you're in Isaiah, primarily, who are these prophecies to? Israel and Judah, right? Over and over and over and over and over and over again. So we go to Isaiah, and then what shall we, what should we, what shall we see? We'll go to verse 19, Isaiah 59, verse 19. And I, again, if we start going back just a little bit, we're probably going to see Israel and Judah mentioned. It probably wouldn't even take us long to find it, okay? But all right. Um, in fact, my heading right here, starting in verse 9, is Israel walks in darkness. So we, even my headings here have Israel mentioned. All right, but verse 19, So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and the glory from the rising of the sun when the enemy shall come in like a flood, the spirit... Uh, of the Lord shall, uh, shall lift up a standard against him. Please, no, don't take that and rip it out of context and apply it to who knows what. It's reference, again, to Israel and things like that. And then he says, The Redeemer shall come to Zion, and unto them, and unto them that turn from transgression in Jacob, saith the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, saith the Lord, my spirit that is upon thee and my Word which I have put in thy mouth shall not depart out of thy mouth, nor out of thy mouth of thy seed, nor out of the mouth of thy seed's seed, saith the Lord, from henceforth and forever. Now, Paul quotes it. It's a little quite different quote a little bit, depending on the way the King James quotes Isaiah 59. Paul makes an emphasis on what? And the way he quotes it in in Romans 11. Yeah, that God is going, that God, they're all going to be saved because God is going to do what? He 
he shall take care of their sin. Does everybody see that? And verse 26, so all Israel shall be saved as it is written. There shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. It's a little different the way it reads in, uh, in Isaiah and the King James. I don't know if the other translations have it more similar. But clearly Paul is making a reference. Who's going to be turning away their sin? The one coming, the deliverer, which is, uh, which is Christ, right? Okay, and then for this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. Who's the there? Israel. Israel. In other words, you're, as Gentiles, think about it. We're grafted in, and what is the benefit we get from being grafted in? Salvation. Israel is set aside temporarily, but they will be brought back, and when they're brought back, what do they get? All be saved, and then all of those benefits which we have outlined in the Old Testament. Now, everybody wants to put us in the covenant that we get things. We're grafted in. We reap that benefit, all right? And then do we have anything else here that we need to read here? All right? Verse 28, as concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes, but as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sake. Hey, right now they're your enemy, but, for, but, but because of election, they are what? They are beloved. Why are they beloved? Because of election. God elected them. God chose them. They are not going to be cast away. For the gifts, uh, for the gifts and callings of God are... Verse 29, uh, let me make it very clear. Verse 29 is of no comfort to you and no comfort to me if God threw Israel out and replaced them with us. But if God elected Israel and will save them, then, his, then God's calling and gifts are without repentance. For as in the times past, have not believed God, yet have now obtained mercy through their unbelief. Even so, have those, these also now, not believe that through your mercy they also may obtain mercy. For God hath concluded them all in unbelief that he might have mercy upon all. He knows they're in unbelief, but they're still going to get mercy. Why are they going to get mercy? They're chosen, and he had made a new covenant with them. All right. Is there any more covenant language in anywhere else? I think we've, we've wiped it out. I think we've wiped it out. I think we've covered it all. So interesting enough, when you walk away tonight, here's what you must take with you. We're not ever really mentioned with the covenant, are we? Are we not in agreement? He was talking to the disciples even then. But, I mean, even then, he only talks about the blood for the forgiveness of sins. He doesn't really say much else, right? Now, you, you, go, you go home and tell people you just heard that in church, and they're going to lose their mind on you. But I'm just telling you, we're not, there's no passage that really articulates my involvement with the new covenant. It, the passage I find that I'm grafted in, and I'm grafted in for what? What do I get? Salvation. The covenant is made with whom? Israel. 
and they get more than just salvation. They get a list of things. Now, we're grafted in, so we benefit with some of those things. We do know this. We get salvation. We do know in salvation, we get an imputed righteousness. So we are made absolutely perfect before God. And we do know that we will be glorified, so then we will be sinless. So there's some similarities. We get, in a sense, a land, but it's not the land. It's a, you know, we're going to obviously be in the new heavens and the new earth right? So there's some similarities, but it's not 100, it's not 100% exact, right? We just know we're grafted in. So anything that we get, anything promises that are directed toward, in other words, when you go through the New Testament and you say, well, that promises towards me, if it's connected with the new covenant, the only reason it's ours is because we're grafted in. But the covenant was made with whom? Israel. We cannot get around that and guess what do we do we see anything in this new covenant language telling us of what anybody must do no all new covenant language is what god does for it's interesting that the study guide makes it like no you've entered the new covenant you must have a singular devotion to god that's not what the new covenant says the new covenant says god almost if you can almost say it this way in the new covenant god demonstrates his singular devotion to us or primarily to Israel. And we just get grafted in. We're just, we're just the girl to make them jealous, right? I mean, we just kind of get pulled. I mean, that's, there's no other way to get around that, correct? All right, any questions? Now, we didn't get very far, so guess what you need to start doing today, and for everyone listening online, you need to just start reading Jeremiah 12 over and over and over, and find why would the study guide connect covenant language to Jeremiah chapter 12. All right, there we go. Does that make any sense? Is that good? All right, I think we're good. I think we're going to have to stop. I know we went a little long. I am going to look at something really quick. I think... Okay, now... um, I was going to see, I I thought one of these did a lot with the covenant, but it's just weird that they start with the covenant language in Jeremiah 12. So you can look at Jeremiah 12 and go, why would the study guide start with covenant, about the covenant? I I thought that would save that till Jeremiah 31. But hey, we'll just get it out of the way, right? So now, I mean, we get to Jeremiah 31, there's nothing to cover, agreed? I mean, we just covered everything we could possibly cover, right? You better remember this, because when I get to Jeremiah 31, I'm going to say, okay, guys. And yeah, yeah, don't look at me going, okay, well, you think we're going to be there in six months? Okay, all right, man, that's awesome that you think I can do that. All right. I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. We're, we're still going to try to, we're going to have to skip a bunch of stuff, but all right, there we go. But if you can figure out why the study guide starts with the covenant, that'll be interesting. What, what is it in Jeremiah 12 that they are trying to do? It's kind of interesting. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this evening. Thank you for an opportunity to be able to struggle with these deep and difficult issues that would probably get us in trouble in other churches. I hope that we will continue to always be willing to study this subject anytime we're confronted with it, even if that means we need to change our view in the future. In the meantime... Help us be grateful and show great gratitude that only because of your mercy have we been grafted in. Let us not be boastful, 
proud or arrogant, but grateful and be so grateful that your gifts and your love is you do not repent of it. You do not turn back on it. If you made a promise, you keep that promise. And we, our entire salvation is dependent upon that. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said,